Well, amen. We are going to find out that's very true in our passage today, that God is fighting for us. And before we dive into that, we want to do a little review, but it's time for a little interaction. So if you want to pull out your phones uh, and be part of this, you can. You can text to the number 22333. The message is HCHURCH300. We're going to do a little survey, a little review of where we've been in numbers. If you're watching online, feel free to join us as well or out in the tent. Grab your phones if you want to be part of it. We don't track who dials in or anything. Um, Just a chance to answer some multiple choice questions together. So again, pull out your phones. You can text to 22333. The first message you want to put in is HCHURCH300, and you'll be in our survey here as we dive into where we've been in review in the book of Numbers. One of the themes we've looked at in this book has been different ways the Old Testament has revealed Jesus. And there's been several ways that we've seen Jesus in the Old Testament. And maybe one was a little more meaningful to you than another. So we're going to put our first question up. Of all the ways you've seen Jesus in the book of Numbers, what resonated with you the most? Was it he was the red heifer? What it meant for him to be the red heifer for us and to bring forgiveness to us? Was it the bronze snake? Or to use Drew's term, snake on a stick? On a stick. Um, Is it the spiritual rock? The flow of water to nourish us of grace and forgiveness? Or is it the talking donkey who addressed the angel of the Lord, Jesus in the Old Testament, who was willing to confront him in his own stubbornness? So you can text A, B, C, or D, and those are coming in live here. Many of you, first service as well, were impacted by the red heifer. Looks like a lot of people here last week. Um, You know, this is really a question to see who's a better preacher, Drew or I. So right now, I'm really getting killed. Because uh, Drew was the red heifer and the bronze snake. Um, It's actually months and months ago we did the spiritual rock. And we'll be digging deeper into the talking donkey uh, coming out of that narrative sermon from a couple weeks ago. Well, awesome. Well, I'm so glad that bronze snake, I thought Drew did a great job of just bringing to light that unbelievable prediction, 1500 B.C., that Jesus would be lifted up, that we could put our trust in him. Awesome. Second question. This morning's passage, we're talking about giants. So what do you think the average height was of a Jewish man, based on the skeletons they found, in first century, going back to the 1500 BC? Four foot ten, five foot zero, five foot one-ish, five foot five, five foot six-ish, or would you pick more like five ten? The average height of a Jewish man in biblical times. So we got a few four tens, not a lot of five tens, and we have several five foot and five foot fives. Last chance to dial in if you want to push the, the number in any direction. All right, well, in this case, the majority is correct. It's between five foot and five foot one was the average Jewish height, which may change the perspective of exactly what a giant is. Speaking of giants, our third question Who is the tallest giant referenced in the Bible? Sion and Og? Goliath or King Saul? All three are referenced as being very, very tall. In fact, that's what, one of the things that stood out about Goliath, stood out about King Saul, and stood out about the Sion and specifically Og as well. So, Goliath, obviously the most popular giant that most of us have heard about. David, you know, knocking him down with a sling. But as we're going to find out today, the correct answer is Og. Og, we're going to find out, is 14 feet tall. That's two or three feet taller than most of the estimates on Goliath. So, good guesses there. Now, as we move into the temptations of Moab, 
we're all tempted by different things, and we're going to really drill down in how temptation works. We're all tempted by all these things, but if you were most tempted by one of these things, what would they be? A for comfort, B for pleasure, C for success, D for money, E for control, F for status, and G for power. Now, some of these feed into each other, right? Sometimes I use power to get more comfort, or I use money to have more access to, uh, to one of the other ones. But what do you think, if you were going to design a custom strategy to tempt you, what would you put as bait? And it looks like over half of us, just like the first service, comfort is the main theme of our temptation. So that means even if we want money or success or pleasure, it's really to bring more comfort into our life. Second looks like pleasure, then control. We don't like to be out of control. How do we control people and circumstances? The two things that don't like to be controlled. And then status, power coming in at the back end and success. All right. Well, I think it's helpful to understand that all of us suffer with temptations. And so for the next couple weeks, we're going to be very, very, very practical on how temptation works and not, not getting sucked into that. Because as we find ourselves in the wilderness of temptation, there's a way we need to perceive temptation. For many of us, we're like Balaam. When it comes to temptation, we don't see what God sees, and we don't hear what God hears. We see what we want to see, and we hear what we want to hear. God says, be careful, that's destruction. Ah, don't worry, I'll be okay. That's a place you'll get hurt, God says. We say, ah, I won't get hurt. But often that's the problem with temptation. We refuse to see what God sees and to hear what God hears when we face the wilderness of temptation. So how can we try and one, hear the truth about the temptation we're facing, and number two, how do we see the truth and trust God as we face the wildernesses of temptation? We find ourselves now in the wilderness of Moab. We're gonna face two giants today, Sion and Og, and my hope is that we can face temptation with truth, and I hope all of us can avoid a lot of pain by figuring out how these strategies work. All right, our first giant. Our first giant we come face to face with, we're going to go back to Deuteronomy, because Deuteronomy gives us a commentary on Sion, but specifically on Og and how big he was. So Moses is writing, and he says, Rise, take your journey, cross over the river. Look, I have given into your hands Sion the Amorite. And just so you know, the Amorites have been building up evil in Canaan for 400 years. God told Abraham 400 plus years ago he was waiting to judge them over 400 years until their wickedness had grown enough it was time to step in. Begin to possess it, with Sionog, engage him in battle. Then you're going to come face to face with Og, the king of Bashan. He remained the remnant of the giants. So Og, we're told for sure, is a giant. How big's a giant? Well, his bed frame, and some commentators think the word Hebrew for bed frame could be coffin. I lean toward his bed, but either way, this is something his body had to sit on. Was an iron bedstead. He's so heavy it needed to be out of iron. It's nine cubits in length. So a cubit is the distance between here and here. So depending on the king or the standard, it changed a little bit. But the best estimates is that his bed was 14 feet, six inches tall. And its width is four cubits, 
which is about the size of a king-sized bed, but 14 feet six long. This is a giant bed for a giant man. Which immediately brings up the question, you're telling me I need to believe the Bible's reliable and true and historical, and you're telling me that it's got Jack and the Beanstalk in it? I mean, come on. Well, let's talk about giants for a moment. So, how do we explain giants? Well, number one, it could be perspective. It doesn't explain Deuteronomy saying there was one 14-footer, but perspective. If the average height of a Jewish soldier at the time was about five foot, even today, people exist in the NBA and other, other places that are seven foot or eight footers, and so a, a, a six or seven footer compared to a five footer would seem like a giant. So that it might explain some of the observational language, but not all of it. Another piece might be genetics. Today, the Guinness Book of World Records said there's somebody living today that's eight foot two. As early as 1940, they recorded a man who was eight foot 11, alive, in, I think it was in America, might have been in uh, Russia. So there are tall people, two or three feet taller than the average Jewish height, even living today. Now, often that's caused by genetics in the pituitary gland, causing things to grow bigger. It's not always um, you've got as much stability, but some of the pituitary gland issues lead to giantism. Now, we're going to find the Amorites specifically seem to have a huge, the whole civilization of the Amorites seem to have a lot of giants, as you'll see from the language. So is that this whole genetic issue of this culture had a pituitary gland issue? Don't know. That's a possibility as well. Might be perspective, might be a genetic thing. Three is archaeological. Most scholars would say that we don't have any evidence of giant skulls, giant skeletons, or giant cities. So that's the majority opinion. However, there are a few scholars. Uh, one of my favorite pastors is Joe Focht out of Calvary Chapel. He loves this subject of giants. It's kind of his personal hobby. He referenced a book called The Giant Cities of Bashan and Syria's Holy Places. I was able to get access to it on Google Books. There's no pictures, but the person alleges that he went to Bashan, did extensive research archaeologically, and he says he found cities with gigantic 12-foot, 4-foot doorways everywhere. Don't know. Most scholars would say we don't have any strong archaeological evidence. This guy in his book um, says the opposite, but it's a long read if you're committed to it. Fourthly, there might be a spiritual component here. Back in Numbers 13, it said, when we came to the promised land, where the Amorites were, we saw giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight as well as their sight. Now, the Anak brings up a very complicated subject from Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, it says there were giants in the land, and they were caused by the Nephilim, the sons of God, or the Nephilim, that came down, these spiritual beings is one interpretation, who basically impregnated human women and created these you know, giant creatures that were kind of part spiritual being and part uh, human. I don't know. However, the flood theoretically would have washed all of them away. So are the genetic components that got into Noah's family? Uh, Deuteronomy 32 implies that at the Tower of Babel, there were another time spiritual beings came down and took control of different countries. We don't know. But maybe there's a spiritual component to why there were certain people serving certain gods who had a, a larger pituitary gland or, or were taller. Don't know. But those are some of the theories. Bottom line is, I don't know, but you don't have to check your brain at the door. There's some actual scientific ways to think about giants. So let's look at our first giant. So our first giant is Sion. So Israel sent messengers to Sion. 
Okay? And if, if nothing we know for sure, this is a mighty warrior they're up against of the Amorites. He's the king of the Amorites, and they say to him, hey, let me pass through your land. This is almost identical to what they said to the king of Edom a few weeks ago. Let me pass through your land. We're not going to turn aside your fields. We're not going to touch your vineyards. We're not going to drink your water from the wells. We're just going to go on the king's highway until we pass through. But Sion would not allow that. Israel cannot pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all the people together, all his people for an army, went out against Israel in the wilderness, came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated them with the edge of the sword. And they took possession of the land. What did God tell him? God says, hey, Sion, here's a chance for peace. Nobody fights, nobody gets hurt. Just let us go through. But Sion is not able to take an offer of peace, just like King Edom, because he's so stubborn and because he's obsessed with power. It's his temptation to keep his power that leads to him losing all of his power and his armies and his territory. That's the first lesson we can learn from our first giant, Sion, is that when you have a giant obsession with power, that obsession with power ultimately leads to you losing power. Sometimes we want relational power, so we gossip and triangulate in order to get relational power. And eventually, that power that we became obsessed with, people realize they can't trust us because we gossiped our way to this place. We might gossip about them, and we lose our power. We all know people who you know, work their way to become the manager, to become the president, to become the CEO. They worked to get power, but then they were all about keeping their power. They didn't make the right decisions. They just made the decisions that kept themselves in power right? And so they were insecure. They didn't delegate well. They didn't empower well. And their obsession with power led to them losing their power. We're all susceptible to it. So how does power work and how do we end up stepping into this temptation of power? Well, just from that little text, I want to give you five principles on power. How does temptation tempt us into destruction? Number one, Power becomes your highest commodity. Of all the things I could do, what's right, what's God say, I begin to think everything is about power. It's the commodity I'm trying to get here. So I only hear and see things through the lens of will this improve my power? Israel sent messengers to Sion, but he's known as his title is power. I'm the king of the Amorites. As you're going to see, power is his highest commodity. And because of that, he filters everything through the lens of that. And that's our second point. When power is your highest commodity, you begin to hear things through that lens. So what is God saying and what are the Israelites saying? They are saying, peace. Nobody gets hurt. Just let us pass through. We won't touch anything. But all he hears is, you're in my territory. This is a threat to my power. This is an opportunity I might lose influence. And because of that, what is not a threat gets perceived as a threat. What is an offer of peace gets perceived as an offer of war. Why? Because power, when it's the highest commodity, it filters how you perceive everything. Which leads to the third stage. The third stage of power is that power becomes your identity. Now we're all capable of this. We might word it a little differently, 
but I am now the size of my territory. I am now defined by the size of my bank account. I'm now defined by how many people like me, my relational power. When you become obsessed with defining yourself by your power, your title, you're well into the path of temptation. See, Sion sent mess- Israel sent messengers to Sion. He's known as the king of the Amorites. I am my title. I am my territory. I am my power. This is why it's very hard for people who turn power into an idol to delegate, to not be insecure, or to empower others. Because it's always a threat, not just to what they're doing, but to who they are. And that is why Sion would not allow, would not empower, would not delegate, would not give credit. Always passes blame, right? Because I am my power base. Well, when you begin to define yourself by your power, things begin to escalate quickly. Stage four of power. Power now becomes your identity, and therefore it's your definition of success. And I begin to make deals. And I make deals, and if the deals get me more power, I make it. Even if it's a bad deal, even if it's a a, a compromise deal, even if I compromise my integrity, if I can get more power in this deal, then I'm willing to filter, compromise, and rationalize. And that's how power works. So why did you do that? Why did he do that? How did they get there? Well, they made a deal, compromised something because they were so focused on getting more power. When power is your definition of success, you can talk yourself into anything. Now notice the deal going on here. So I've added a little bit more to Deuteronomy to this passage because Deuteronomy, Moses expounds upon the deal that they offer. So here's numbers and a little Deuteronomy. So Sion would not allow Israel to pass. Now Deuteronomy. I sent messengers to Sion the king of Heshbon with words of peace. They were words of peace. There's nothing more than words of peace. And I said, let us pass through your land. I will keep strictly to the road. I won't turn to the left or to the right. And then Moses said, I tried to make a deal with him, a peace deal. You sell me food, I'll give you money because we're hungry. And give me some water, I'll give you some money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot to the land our God is giving us. This was a peace deal. But Sion is so defined by power, he only sees this as a deal where he might lose power. So instead of getting some money and giving some food and water, he goes to war. Why? Because power is his definition of success. And here's the last principle, and we see this all the time. It's in every movie, but you've seen it in the workplace which is power is willing to sacrifice anything to protect itself. I get power to accomplish a goal, but once I got the goal, it's now to keep the power, right? Somebody gets the job by making right decisions, but then keeping the job becomes the definition of success, and therefore they begin to sacrifice the right decision to keep the job. And they end up not doing a good job at the job. Now for Sion... He's willing to sacrifice all of his armies and all of his people in order to hold his power. And ultimately, he doesn't keep his power. He loses his power. 
It's his obsession with power that loses, leads to him losing his power. So Sion gathers all his people that he'll ultimately sacrifice. He went out against Israel and he fought against them and he ultimately was defeated. Now, I don't know about you, but several of those steps I've seen in my life, I'm almost always on one of those steps. And from our survey earlier, you might say, well, it's not really power for me, but comfort does the same thing. Or pleasure does the same thing. How are you tiptoeing into temptation? I was talking to a buddy of mine a couple years ago, and he had worked his way through the political system by supporting candidates and helping candidates get elected at the local level and state level and national level. And he'd worked his way up to the place that he was next up to run for, for you know, Congress or Senate or something, a big position. And I chatted with him and I said, well, man, it must be pretty exciting. These decades of work, decades of putting in the time and building the connections and building relationships, what are you going to do? He said, well, I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I've asked a lot of people advice on it. And most of them said, go for it. It's your time. But I've decided not to do it. Why? He says, I've just noticed over time, and I've been doing this for decades, that many of the people that I've seen go into power and helped put in positions of power, they have not become the best version of themselves. And I am aware that if I put myself in this position and if I get this position of power, I'm not sure I will become who God wants me to be. I went, whew. Now there's somebody who's not obsessed with power. They're obsessed with becoming who God wants them to be and they're seeing power that may work well, right? Power is something we can use to, to serve other people and help other people. But for him, it was actually incompatible with who God wanted him to be at that stage. He knew he was too susceptible to that temptation. And I think I can't give advice to you as to what you should do, except you need to listen to the voices in your own head. What are the songs you sing to yourself? If you're obsessed with power, you might need to be very careful around power. If you sing songs about pleasure, you might need to be very careful around pleasure. Sion has this song which kind of drives him. Let me show you this song. And the fact that he loses power really occurs because of this song. Israel took all the cities. They dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites. He loses it all here. In Heshbon and all of its villages. Now we're going to talk specifically about the city of Heshbon. It was the city, was the city, of Sion of the Amorites who had fought against the former king of Moab. Keep that in mind. He, he, the mighty Sion, defeated the king of Moab and had taken all his land from his hand as far as Arnon. All right, so king of the Amorites had defeated the Moabites and they wrote a song about him. And here's the song. Therefore, those who speak of it speak in this proverb. Think of it like a hymn or a song. Come to Heshbon, the song goes. Let it be built. Let the city of Sion be repaired after he defeated the mighty Moabites. For fire had gone out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sion. It consumed Ar of Moab, the lords of the heights of Arnon. Woe to you, Moab! You have perished, O people of Chermash. And that was their god, Chermash. 
He has given his sons as refugees and his daughters into captivity to Sion, the king of the Amorites. So this is like a proverb, a song that's sung. And in one sense, Sion's been singing this to himself. Yes, I'm the one that defeated Moab. I'm the one that defeated all those people. He's got that song. I want more songs written about me. I want more people to know all the cities I'm going to defeat. This will be another chance for a song when I defeated the Israelites. Now Moses turns this on its head. He says, but because you're obsessed with power and because you didn't hear what God said and didn't see what God was showing you, let me give you the last verse to the song. So he's basically added a song verse to this song. But we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Dibon. We laid waste to the place as far as Nobar, which reaches Nebula. Don't worry about the names. He's basically saying, and after all that, Israel came in and our God crushed you. Thus, Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent out those to spy out Jazir and took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. He said, the final verse of your song is that you lost your power because you became obsessed with power. And God and the Israelites took over land when you could have had peace. How serious do you take your temptations? And how far are you willing to go to make sure that whatever your temptation is, it's subordinate to God's rule and God's guidance in your life? See, a man who really impacted me, I, I disagree with him theologically on a lot of stuff, but I'm really impacted by him personally. It's a man named uh, Henry Nouwen. He's a Catholic mystic. Henry was the go-to speaker. He had degrees from Ivy League schools. He was on the top speakers list, traveling around, requests, requests, requests. Everyone wanted to get and talk to the great Henry Nouwen. And as he was very, very successful at the top of his game, he began to wrestle with the condition of his own soul. He began to see his power and reputation becoming his definition of success in a way that was unhealthy to who he was. So shockingly, he stepped out of the limelight at the peak of his career, and in his book, The Road to Daybreak, he talks about going to live at daybreak a community of men with mental handicaps to serve others, to be with others. And he said that first six months to a year was shocking to him because when he first arrived, suddenly everything that mattered in his old world didn't matter in this. No one cared about his resume. No one cared about his degrees. No one cared about how he used to speak to huge Conferences of five, 6,000. They wanted to know, can you help me get my shoes on today? And can you help me get my spoon up to my mouth? And can you help me when I don't know why I'm angry to get self-control? He said it was during this time he began to wrestle with what is really a must-have and a can't-lose. That we go about obsessing over must-have power, must-have approval, must-have likes, must-have money, 
And all the things he had built his life and identity on really didn't matter. He says he felt naked. And he had to rebuild who he was from the ground up. As he learned who he was in God and began to serve. He then began to write books and speak again. But from a much healthier and soulishly solid place. The temptation of power. There's somebody who's willing to go to all ends to save his own soul. Our second giant. This is the one that's 14 foot tall, Mr. Og. So Og, let's show you a little map here. We're going to zoom in here on the earth, and I'll show you exactly where these battles are occurring. So we've got two kings. So they had gone down here and fought this battle at Heshbon against Sion, who made his way up here. Then they marched their way up to Edriel, where Og comes down. So this is where the next battle's occurring. So this is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Dead Sea. This is the Jordan River. So this is where we're at. So we're moving now to the second giant. So they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. So Og, the king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edriel. So there's this battle going on here. Now, Sion was, was strong. He was a mighty warrior of the Amorites who were in general considered big and tall. But Og is 14 foot tall. This seems like it's in a whole nother level. And you can see that because they are terrified. Who's going to take on the 14 footer? And God turns to them and says, do not fear him. The 14 footer? Do not fear him. Why? How could we not? For I have delivered him into your hand. In my mind, it's already past tense. I also delivered all his people, all his land, and you shall do unto him just like you did to Sion. Just a bigger version of Sion here. Who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him. His sons, his people, until there was no survivor left, and they took possession of the land. Now, I have seen many, many, many people give in to the temptation to power. But I see another temptation that I see destroying people is when comfort and being free of fear becomes your must-have and your can't-lose. People are like, I've been in so much pain for so long. I will do anything to not be anxious. I will do anything to not be in pain. I will do anything so that this season won't keep going on. And they give in to overusing alcohol or drugs they never thought they would take or having affairs they never thought they would do or pornography they never were addicted to. But what really got them in is the whole time saying, I'm just fearful that this pain's going to go on, this loneliness is going to go on, this season's going to go on, and I just can't take it anymore. I'm open to anything that will give me relief. And that's why fear is so powerful as a setup to temptation. And I think the lesson we learn here from Og is that giant obstacles... I don't want to go through that. I can't take that anymore. 14-footer. They tempt us to give in to giant fears because we just feel powerless. I just need to get back in control of a little bit of happiness. So God gives them three steps here. Don't nurse it, don't rehearse it, and let God reverse it. 
These are just real practical ways to remember how to deal with fear. Right out of that passage. Let's go back to it. Number one, don't nurse fear when you face giants. God said, when you come into this battle, you're going to think 14-footer, 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 14-footer. You're going to nurse it. No way we can do it. No way we can do it. No way we can do it. We can't make it. If this goes on any longer, I can't take it. Can't take it. Can't take it. And you're nursing or feeding your fear. I don't want you to do that. I want you to come into it and say, we got a God who defeated the, the Egyptians. We got a God who defeated Sion. That guy's big, but my God's bigger. Now you're nursing your faith, not nursing your fear. See the difference? Secondly, don't rehearse fear. Fear is like a snowball. The more you roll it around in your head, the bigger it gets, right? He says, here's what I want you to roll around in your head. Don't rehearse fear when you face giants. I want you to rehearse my promises. I have already delivered him into your hand. Wow, that's big. God has already delivered him into my hand. <laughs> God has already delivered him in my hand. He's just a bigger version of Sion. All right. Do not rehearse fear when you face giants. Rehearse God's promises. And if you can do that, all those lies of temptations, all those I can't take it anymores, that feeling of powerlessness will begin to change because you are powerful. You're meditating or thinking or rehearsing on the truth of God. And therefore, God can reverse it. And that's what he does. Look what happens. Guys, rehearse this. Do unto him like you did unto Sion. You trusted me and I took care of it. So they defeated him. How long have you allowed fear to hold you back? Call it anxiety. Call it fear. Call it control. Whatever word you want to give it. God may want you to take possession of some things. And that land is there, and God has already given it to you if you would just step into it. Here's a picture of that area of Bashan. Do you notice something? Green! It's finally green! Green land! Harvest! Gardens! Wow! Here's another view. Might it be that God has some green pastures and some gardens and some wells for you to take possession of? But you are missing it. You're missing out on it because you've backed yourself up in the temptation of fear. What you nurse and what you curse. I just can't take it anymore. You just keep rehearsing it, nursing it. And God says, I've got something for you, but you're not going to experience it until you step into it and take possession. Now, the only way you and I are going to do that is if power is not our must-have, can't-lose idol, and if not feeling powerless is not our must-have. Instead, we make God our giant must-have and can't lose in our life. See, when God is your giant must-have, everything else subordinates itself to that giant. Your fears are under that giant. Power, good things, under that giant. Money, great thing, under that giant. Temptation is always something that draws us in when I can't lose my power, I can't lose my title, I can't lose my social access. When they become can't-loses and must-haves, they become an idol, and you're already on the path to temptation. 
What does it look like for you to make God your must-have and your must-not-lose? There's a psalm that's written years later, Psalm 135, and they say God is our must-have and God is our must-not-lose. And they meditate on two things. This is what I want you to do this week. In order to make God your must-have and your must-not-lose, I want you to meditate this week on who he is and what he's done. Who he is and what he's done. This is exactly what happens in the psalm. Psalm 135. For I know that the Lord is great. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And he goes on. He makes lightning and rain and wind. God, man, he's just so powerful. He's my must-have. He's who I want by my side. And then they begin to rehearse what he's done. He sent signs and wonders in the midst of Egypt upon Pharaoh and his servants. He defeated many nations. He flew mighty kings. He defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites. And God defeated Og, the king of Bashan. For God to be your must-have, you're saying, listen, I'd like to have smaller giants in my life, but I must have the biggest giant by my side. Meditate on who he is and what he's done this week. That he would become the must-have of your mind and your heart and even your imagination. Let's pray. Father, we think of all these people in Israel who fought for freedom. That hundreds of years of liberty, spiritual liberty, political liberty, will be experienced because of those who fought and died for freedom. Boy, this Memorial Day, Father, we think of our fathers and grandfathers, grandmothers and mothers and sisters who fought and died facing giants, circumstances and wars that we've never had to face because of their sacrifice. And Father, we thank you for their sacrifice and thank you for the freedom we experience in this country because of it. But Father, we also think of the tragedy, just like the Amorites spread their evil for 400 years, we think of the evil of this senseless shooting in Texas this week, Father. We ask that your spirit would bind whatever spiritual forces might be behind this, spirits of confusion and hatred and anger and, and, and division, Father. We ask that you would bind those evil spirits that are leading people astray and leading people to think that darkness is light and light is darkness. Father, we ask you to confuse the path of evil Allow your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we ask you to raise up bearers of light to stand up against evil, to stand up against darkness. Come, Lord Jesus, and fix this place. But until then, Father, show us how we can be light of comfort, the light of hope, and the light of service to those in our influence. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.